You're listening to the Modern Learners Podcast, and I'm Missy Emler, your host. In this podcast, we explore topics in education through the Modern Learners lens. We dig into beliefs about learning, the modern contexts that impact learning in schools, and the practices that create the conditions for learning to take place. No matter how hard we challenge you or the status quo, remember this, we're not asking you to change, we're asking you to learn. Now, let's get started. Today's show is the kickoff to our Modern Learners theme in Modern Learners Community. We'll be exploring our beliefs about math education, what's working, what's not, and what's possible. Considering the impact that machine learning and AI are having on the world, it's important we start to consider how these fields will impact what our learners need to know and be able to do. In order to move our math classrooms forward into the next decade, we must consider our current practices and really question if they match our beliefs and serve our students. In just a second, I'll be replaying a podcast episode Bruce Dixon recorded with Conrad Wolfram. But before I play that for you, I wanted to share the stories that shape my personal math identity. Math identity is one of the concepts we'll explore in MLC this month. My math identity started to take shape in first grade when I was the first one to slam down my pencil with 13 seconds left for the mad minute, and guess what? I got them all right. The same day, I won around the world twice. I was a math person. But then, eighth grade happened, my math teacher recommended the Algebra A, then Algebra B track instead of Algebra. I was not a math person. So I've always been pretty self-determined, and I wasn't gonna stand for that. I'd just work harder in algebra, duh, but I wasn't going down the slow track. Fast forward a couple of years and I was copying every single assignment in my Saxon Algebra Two math book. I wasn't the only one. And the odds were in the back of the book. <laughs> I wasn't a math person. But why wasn't I a math person? What were the conditions in the environment that initiated and nurtured that thought? I'm also curious about the implication of those thoughts on my adult life, my career choice, my parenting, my finances. What opportunities have I missed out on because I'm not a math person? And I really want to know what math classrooms around the world are doing to build every learner's math identity because truth be told, We're all math people, and it's time we all work to understand and foster that. Conrad Wolfram has been advocating for an overhaul to math curriculum for years. He is the founder and CEO of Wolfram Alpha and Mathematica. He is particularly interested in how technology and computation can move our lives and economies forward, in turn, how that affects education. He believes math in school is almost totally irrelevant from its real-world application. 
In this conversation with Bruce, Conrad says there are four parts to using math in real life. Define the problem. Turn it into symbolic representation if we can. Take question to answer. Determine what this means and does it make sense. After you listen, join the conversation in MLC. Simply head to modernlearners.community and sign up or sign in. For now, enjoy the conversation with Bruce Dixon and Conrad Wolfram. So welcome, uh, Conrad Wolfram, to uh, Modern Learners Podcast. It's great to have you with us. Um, thanks very much for joining us. We're, uh, we've been an admirer of your work for a number of years now and um, very keen to have you share uh, some of the work that you've been doing and the experiences that you've had uh, in countries around the world in recent times. So thanks very much for joining us. I wanted to start, if I could, with um, just a little bit of background to you and your work at Wolfram, generally the work that you do beyond uh, the work in computer-based mathematics. Could you give us a bit of a background to the work that you're doing in Wolfram uh, research as an example? Sure. Yeah, so uh, that's my day job, which uh, uh, I guess in essence is pushing the boundaries of computation. So what we've been doing for nearly 30 years now is to build, so to speak, the ultimate ecosystem for delivering uh, computation at the highest levels and at the broadest level um, to everyone. And, you know, to start with, that was kind of math. You know, people thought, it, you know, it was, it was solving integrals and doing that. And sure, we do all of that. But what's happened, interestingly, over the nearly 30 years, 30 year anniversary next year, actually, uh, is that computation has been much broader as a, a, a necessity for life. And so what we've seen is what was thought to be a rather narrow endeavor has now become a broad supporter of most of you know, the different industries, government, universities, schools, all the things you can imagine in society. And so we've been sort of building out, and I guess one of the break points was 2009, we released Wolfram Alpha, which in a sense was an application of our technology to natural language linguistic processing. And uh, that's kind of broadened out. So you can ask any query on online, and in fact, uh, even uh, through Siri to Apple, uh, uh, some of our queries get, get, you know, so Apple hand over a bunch of their queries to to us. Um, and so that's kind of been the, the broad, uh, that's the day job, trying to make the computer do as much as we can in automating computation and driving it forward. So how does the day job then translate into your work um, that we're focused on here around computer-based mathematics? Where does that start? Am I right in saying uh, back in the 1980s, you were taken by a conversation you had around uh, the blind uh, belief that we had in computation, and it was related to a discussion you had with a classmate around climate change. Oh, yeah. No, that's right. The, um, actually, it was the time when a lot of the environmental modeling started getting going. Mm -hmm. And I thought there were claims that were unsubstantiatable. Right, it's like, well, you know, do they really know this? It seems like a very complicated model to predict 30 years ahead exactly what's gonna happen. Not yep. to say it's not more extreme or less extreme, just it's hard to model. But that got me thinking, you know, do people really understand where computation can help, where it can't help? Is it clear how the maths you're doing at school is useful in life? 
because although you know I quite enjoyed maths, I was pretty good at. It. I was better at maths than I was at French, so it was more fun. Uh, so you know, so I quite enjoyed beating my classmates at some of the tests and things. But in the end, the question was, how was I going to use that? And was that you know, it's a general purpose subject for everyone. So that got me thinking about that. And then obviously, I spent a long time trying to build. Uh, Mathematica, our main software, as, as I described, and how we do computation in the world. And uh, but I watched as this change in the world, which is sort of applying computers to do the calculating computation, was not happening in education. It seemed to be just diverging off, or at least not even diverging off. It was staying basically as it had been for the last couple of hundred years when the world outside had changed. And so that's kind of the connection. And, and, and the, I think one of the big issues is people, uh, you know, it, it gets harder when you have computers because you attempt harder problems. Mm -hmm. And so it's no good just, you know, even if you say, well, I want to stand still just to make sure that people learn cognitively the same things they learned before. That's not going to do the trick because the world has moved forward and the problems we're attempting to use mathematics and computation for are just so much harder than they were. So, so what is the mathematics that we should be doing in a digitally rich world? What is the mathematics that young people in school should be doing when they have access to their own personal portable computers? Well, the way I think about this is, you know, mathematics in, a, in, a, in essence is, is kind of one of the world's most successful problem solving systems. Mm -hmm. You know, it's proved itself. And, and, and what's exciting is it used to be for a rather narrow set of problems. Now we have computers, it's for a much broader set of problems because there are all sorts of things you couldn't do when you didn't have mechanized calculating, which you can now do. Biological problems, data science, those sorts of things, for example. So what we should be doing in essence uh, in schools is learning how to use the, the problem solving system of mathematics with the best tool for the job. And sometimes that's us, as our as human intellect, and sometimes it's our machines, our computers, and we should do the best we can to solve the problems with those tools and whatever combination of those tools is. And part of what you need in education is to learn how to manage the tool with your own intellectual endeavor. So it's it's a it's it's several things. It's what does the tool do for me, and how does it plug into the system of solving problems? What do I need to know to use the tool and to make sure it gives me the right answers? How do I manage the interaction between those? How do I keep going as the tool improves and know what the essence was versus the, the tool of the day? And, and one way to look at this is to think of mathematics as a four-step problem-solving system. Right. So, you know, we talk about, you know, the first step is you define the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, if I lock you in your room and seal it and we talk for too long, how long could you survive, right? So that, that would be a problem we could, we could try and quantify. That's, we're defining the problem and I've already put some boundaries on that. You know, we, we seal the room, we're assuming no air flowing in I'm, and out. I'm, I'm hoping our podcast doesn't go that long. Yeah, well, so, so am I. <laughs> you have to keep me under control. Um, you know, so, so the second step would be, okay, we got that. Can we turn it into math speak? Can we turn it into this symbolic representation? Uh, and the reason for doing that is because that problem may actually be the same as lots of other problems out in there in the world, which sound different in English. But it, over the years, we've turned them into this abstract form. And the point of the abstract form is we can then solve them because we have hundreds of years of experience 
and the technology now to be able to take that question in symbolic form and turn it into the answer. So that's all step two, define in a symbolic way. Step three, you want to take that question to the answer. And that's where you can typically use a computer and you can take much harder questions and turn them into real answers because you have a computing power. But traditionally, we've done that bit by hand. And step four is, you know, you, you say, okay, I got X equals three. Uh, what does it mean? Did it answer my question? Does that mean three hours? Is that right? Did, you know, does that check out? And maybe I'll have to go around the cycle again. So that's the kind of essence of what you're doing with problem solving. What we're saying is use the computer as much as possible for step three. Don't spend all your time in school learning step three by hand and drowning out all the other, all the other steps. And that is what's happening in, across the world in math curricula that basically steps three as 80% of the, of, of the job, uh, I hand calculating, and steps one, two, and four are kind of forgotten about to a large extent. And that's what people critically need in the outside world today. So the obvious question is why? Why do you think we, we still today, given the logic of what you've just said, why are we distracted by the computation that you talked about in, that, in those steps? I think there's a sort of comedy of errors which has resulted in this. So, I mean, the first thing to say is education, the whole ecosystem of education, whether maths or history or whatever, moves slowly and is very locked together at the moment. One of the reasons for that is, you know, and I, I don't want to, you know, people like PISA, the groups like PISA who tie different countries together in looking at their results. I, I don't want to knock because I think a lot of what they've done can help the pedagogical approach, but at the same, by the same token, it also locks the subjects together. So if you're a minister in, you know, in uh, one of the states in Australia, for example, and you go off and, you know, you're comparing your PISA results to Singapore, you're going to be comparing what you're doing, not on top of the political situation you have where you are yeah. to convince people on the ground to make change. You've also got to make change and convince everyone that actually you're doing well internationally. Yeah. And the test may not be the right way to do it. So that's one layer of problem. The other problem is, of course, you've got to you know, get teachers on board, parents on board, you know, and the kids themselves. Now, I actually think with some, you know, but that's scary, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's change. It's scary. There's a lot of things to move, a lot of people to move. So I think there's a good reason why it hasn't really changed. I think the, the other part of it is total confusion. I mean, one thing I didn't realize when I started this journey you know, there are a few people who are outright hostile for one reason or another. Uh, some of them you can argue with, some of them you can't. There are, there are quite a lot of people actually who are, once they understand what I'm trying to say, are incredibly positive. I mean, they are, you know, they get it. They say, why are we using, you know, not using the machines when they're there and everything else? It all makes total sense. Uh, hopefully I can get more people with this uh, onto that side. There are a lot in the middle where they'd never thought about it. They've done maths in the same way as they've learned other things, which, which is part of culture, they didn't really think about what they're doing. And, and actually, a lot of the teachers don't really know why they're teaching quite a lot of the maths, which I think is, is negative in terms of trying to get the students infused. Because, you know, it's like, why are you learning how to solve a quadratic equation? Uh, well, I'm not sure. I've never really used a quadratic equation in my life. Uh, so, you know, it's a little not clear. Um, uh, and you can form arguments for why you do that. But in the end, you can form better arguments for why you should learn something else, in my experience. Um, so I think there's a huge intransigence to change. I think there's quite a lot of confusion about what's needed. And I think there's confusion about 
what it is, what the essence of mathematics is and should be, and kind of what the mechanics of the moment are, you know, are. And I mean, I the analogy someone's uses, you know, I think if if photography was a mainstream subject, yep. I suspect the curriculum would still be uh, starting with how you load a film into a camera. Yeah, how you develop it. That's right. And how you develop it. And, and not how, you know, the essence of what I would think of photography, which is you're trying to, if it's still photography, you're trying to represent the world in an interesting way by taking those still photos and giving people a perspective on that, right? Which, which has changed the mechanism. You know, it was glass plates and it was film. Now it's digital through a traditional yeah. camera and it's changing again, you know, yeah. and that's fine. But the essence has actually remained relatively constant, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the parallel, of course, is also the analogy that Seymour Papert uses with the stagecoach and, and, and putting a jet engine on the stagecoach and expecting it to, to behave in the same way, et cetera. And, and so we're talking about a change of mindset, aren't we? I mean, it's, it's a completely different way of thinking about a subject that many people are comfortable with, are competent at. Um, and, and what you're saying to many people, I think, is, is logical, but they're challenged by its implementation. What are the implications for me as a mathematics teacher? So I'm a mathematics teacher, I'm listening to this podcast and I, I hear these ideas and I'm saying to myself, and, and you know, you and I have spoken a number of times, where do you start? What's the starting point for a math teacher, for a school leader, for a principal, for a superintendent in a school district who, who, who knows where you're going, who wants to be part of this, um, but, but as you said, it's, it's complex. Uh, what's the starting point for them? Well, I think it's two ways through. I mean, assuming that the curriculum hasn't changed and there's no kind of governmental action to help, right? Let's just assume that just we're, we're as we are today. Yep. Uh, I think one thing to do is, is to say, are there problems we can take in real life, in the student's current life, that we can use the mathematics for? rather than starting from the abstraction. Because I think at the moment what happens is we start from very abstract, you know, solve this equation. And if you're very lucky, you know, three lessons later, you discover what you might apply it to. Yeah. And then the problems tend to be very fake because the problems are only problems that you can solve by hand calculating, which isn't very many problems realistically. Yeah. Um, so I, I think one thing one could do pretty quickly with some help within the current curricula is simply turn that on its head and start with real problems. Mm -hmm. And even if you, if you start by doing everything with a computer and say, okay, well, we'll we don't worry about how to solve this equation. It came out as a cubic equation rather than the quadratic. Just shove it into the computer and let's get it going. Uh, let's see if we believe it. And, and go through and get the, get the student excited about using the mathematics to solve problems they give a damn about at this moment in their life. Um, I think, you know, if you then need to come back and say, oh, okay, well, we actually need to go into step three and <laughs> do it by hand for the problems you're going to face. Well, I think it's do it. But I think they may learn to do that much quicker once they understand the context. So I think that's an immediate thing to be done. Um, I mean, what we've been trying to do as an organization is work with different jurisdictions to see whether we can find a slot where we can, you know, sort of replace a bit with the new computer-based concept and we've done that by trying to build interactive materials that have both a teacher and a student version can combined so that the teacher is fully briefed on the new way they can do this. I mean, it, it sounds horrifying, but we try and map out literally every minute of the lesson, not because not because I'm, you know, a teacher understands and, and feels comfortable. They can just 
do what they want, but use this as a basis, a teacher feels a bit less comfortable, could literally walk through it and work with their students on it. But one way or another, we've been trying to lay out everything in detail with lots of interactivity, starting from problems, pulling in traditional bits of math where we need them, and, you know, having the computing power there ready to, to go and then trying to solve it. So, so sort of the things we've had as headings of these are, uh, am I normal? You know, can maths help me figure out as a teenager if I'm normal? You know, do I have the same foot size as other people or height? What, what does normal mean? So we're trying to ask quite fuzzy questions because I think the fuzzy questions become more interesting in terms of what you can attempt. You know, are girls better at maths? Uh, let's collect all the data, figure out, do some data science. What do we mean? Do boys and girls, when they analyze it, come up with different, different ideas as to who's better at maths, depending on what question you're really asking and so forth. So that's sort of what we're trying to do, put some life into it like that. But you, the trouble is, most of those questions are not amenable to, to hand calculating because there's too much data, there's too complex an actual calculation to do. So that's why the computer is so central in allowing that context. Um, and so, um, and indeed, this is very much true in, in uh, Australia at the moment. I think there is a very ongoing conversation. And, and uh, as, you know, I've been recently in, in yep. Australia. Um, with a number of states and, and centrally as well about, you know, you, you've got a new uh, curriculum across the country. Can, does that allow this to fit? And I think it does, by the way. Uh, what can we put into that? Is there a, you know, are there some projects we can start to really get this going? Because I think it is very tricky, much as I said that individual teachers can, you know, could, can do things in their classroom. It, it is tricky. I know how tricky it is to build these sorts of problem sets to try and make this go. And I think it's completely unrealistic to think that most teachers can just generate this somehow yep. and make it work without without any help from the top, so to speak. So when you when you when you're doing this work at the curriculum level, at the policy level, systemically, um, I think you talk about the fact that it, you believe it should be ordered conceptually on the level of conceptual difficulty rather than a, a computational difficulty, which I think in your, in your mind is certainly the way it has been ordered in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you think of the curriculum as it is at the moment, the, the order in which you attempt things very much depends on how hard it was to learn to do this step three of calculating. Yep. But actually it seems to me that some of the things, so a typical example I think of is calculus. You know, in the end, it seems to me, the idea of, let's say, you know, breaking an odd shape into lots of little slices, which then get infinitely small. Actually, that's an, a fundamental idea that I think crops up, you know, for most five or six-year-olds. I mean, in, in a way, you know, the idea of making them smaller, 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 smaller to the extreme is actually a pretty young <laughs> age type of thing. Now... Why do we leave it so late? Well, because integrals are hard to compute, really. And, and there's some other stuff. I'm not suggesting necessarily five-year-olds could, but I think 10-year-olds could start to actually just use integrals for doing things and working stuff out or, or derivatives for uh, the, other, uh, the other way around. So that's a typical example where I think conceptually, for some of it, it's not too hard, but computation has been difficult, so we've left it very late. And, and I think there are quite a few other things like that. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, to take a modern one, machine learning. Mm -hmm. Machine learning, in essence, uh, which essentially says to the machine, learn a bit like we think a human does, uh, by seeing lots of examples, being told what they are, and then being able to classify things uh, having based on that experience. 
again, that seems like a part of the tool set that should come rather early. Now, how does machine learning work with all the neural networks? That's tough. That's the sort of problem we have to work, work out in Wolfram Research to make the machine do it. But that shouldn't be the student's initial problem. Their problem is just to use that tool. And, and one of the interesting sort of points I like to make, you know, when we're talking about systemically is, at the moment, we are giving our students a very small tool set because we're saying to them basically, you know, if it was DIY, we're saying you're only allowed to use a hammer when you've learned how to make the hammer and so forth with all the tools, yeah. right? So that means it, you end up with a pretty small tool set. And by the way, that also means that most problems look like nails. It, it's quite hard to get out of your head. You know, if, if the only tool you've got is a hammer, everything kind of seems like that's what you do with it. Um, yeah. So what we're saying is give people the very broadest set of tools, including very modern tools, just because they've been invented most recently. I mean, machine learning to me seems actually a much easier conceptual thing to understand than many much older tools. Yep. Give them the whole tool set. Part of the intellectual challenge, which we're totally missing at the moment, is picking the right tool for the job. And given that you've got hundreds of tools, mathematical tools, actually that's a pretty hard challenge. And that's something that our students really need to get. And that's true in, in life in general. We, we have all these machines. Actually knowing which machine, and, and back to the DIY analogy, knowing which tool to use for your DIY problem when you've got all the electric power tools and everything else, actually a, some, something of a challenge too. So it, it, it comes back to also, again, Seymour's analogy was we should have, uh, you know, five and six-year-old students doing engineering. I mean, if they started doing engineering at that level, and he always talked about COGS, of course, as one of his reference points, then they'd see the purpose of it all, it'd have meaning for them, and, and their ability to apply that at a conceptual level would be much easier for them because they've got some real-world um, environment or context in which they can think for it. Yeah, I mean... Totally agree. And it's funny, by the way, about Seymour Papa, and, and I wrote this, um, sadly, when he died, uh, I think it was a year or two ago, uh, I wrote a little piece about this, but because I never actually met Seymour, and I knew about him, it's sort of, I got to know more and more pieces of what he was saying, and realizing how, sort of, it was a constructionist way of learning about those pieces, uh, as he would have approved of, I think. Um, oh, yeah. And I find out more and more about what he thought, and I sort of separately thought, but they very much align. Yeah, I mean, I just think, we, um, whether it's physical things like cogs and, and actually playing with those, which I think is really important, uh, mechanically, which I, you know, uh, personally, I love doing. I'm probably more of a, a hardware guy in some ways than a software guy. Um, or whether it's, you know, but, but it's also now we've got this fantastic virtual toolkit, yep. which allows us sort of to do the cogs, but to do it with a computer as well or instead, or, you know, and to go much further and to imagine more greater things. So I, I totally agree with that way of doing it. I think you need to start with a problem or an issue or something that engages the student early on, which seems relevant to their life first then they find the abstraction can be interesting because it can help them solve their problem. Yeah. It seems to me there are a few of us where, you know, learning the abstraction first, just for the sake of it being abstract is exciting. And that's great. I'm, I'm all for that if it switches people on. Uh, and it did to me to some extent, I think there is a far greater set of people where we're just switching them way off with that. And I think it's a huge struggle for teachers, by the way, because I think the teachers are trying to drive this abstraction and people are going, eh, don't really care about the abstractions, don't know why it relates to me. And so I think it's sort of a struggle always round. But, but I do think eventually the abstraction is very important. And one of the things I also think is that the, the modern way of sort of producing the abstraction is coding. 
in a sense. Writing down the abstract. How do you write down the abstraction to tell a computer what to do? Well, you type code, basically. You write code or you get code in. And that's actually this sort of step two I talked about earlier. This abstraction layer is often manifested that way. Yeah, I'm also interested in the fourth step as well. I don't think that's an area that many people have paid attention to in schools uh, as much. That interpretation that in many ways it's get the right answer, get a tick, well done, off you go. And and the and the secret of the whole process is is stage four. If we're if we're not out there interpreting, the, you know, looking for the implications of what we've just found out and where it applies and what the context for it is, surely the whole point of it all has been lost. Totally lost. Yeah, I mean. And step four and step two in particular are ones that really fail our students in the outside world. I mean, as you correctly say, and, and what's, there's a funny sort of discussion that goes on here because people say if you use computers more, you'll just, just, you'll just become dumb and somehow type right. the stuff into a calculator and you know, the result come out. You won't know it's wrong. I think completely the opposite if you do this, set this up correctly. Firstly, I, I think if you have an open-ended computer to use rather than a calculator with it all set, you're less likely to do that because you've got to actually think what you put into it. It's open-ended. Secondly, um, if you get used to dealing with things that are much more open-ended, harder, where you've got lots of different things, you, you, you build up new ways to check what you've done. And the way you check what you've done isn't always by calculating it by hand. You know, if you're an engineer today and you build a bridge, and you calculate all, or rather you calculate everything for building a bridge, uh, you can't just go through and check it all by hand because it's too, too hard. But what you can do is you can develop alternative strategies for figuring out whether it really answered what you wanted. And that's what we've got to do. And, and again, we're masking all of that because we're, as you say, we're, we, you, you get a tick for the right answer, which may be something you've stumbled across by, ha by chance. You know, could you reverse engineer the answer? I mean, I like, you know, could you look it up in the back of the book to get the right answer and all these sorts of things without delving into the different ways you might do verification? Because I think a lot of it's about verification, not hand calculating to get the verification. Uh, I mean, that's one strategy. Estimating and hand doing it is one strategy, which is sometimes useful, but not the only strategy. To, to just, you know, go to, go to a topic that, you know, often gets thrown up, I'm sure you've, address this in many forums from parents and that is you know the, and I don't even like sort of using the word in in the context of discussion we're having but the notion of basics do you want to do you want to just make comment sure. on, on what you see as the basics and where so I'm, I, in many ways I am talking predominant for a start off by the way I think most people misinterpret that word themselves they don't really know how to define it and I always say that you know numeracy is like the poor cousin to literacy. We know what literacy means, but to most people, if I say to them, what do you actually mean by numeracy? They sort of look at you. Yeah. And go, wow. I just hope they can do their tables. And I think, really, is that what you mean? Okay. Well, we'll leave it. So what, what's your sense about that? How do you respond to parents who have those thoughts? Well, I mean, I think there are basics. The basics I think we need to engender is this running this four step process. I talked about a problem solving. Those are the basics of using mathematics and applying mathematics, which is what people really need to in the outside world. I think that, as, as you're saying, often what gets confused is the basics of calculating with the basics of mathematics. And in a sense, uh, I don't, I mean, I think you need to, it's useful to, there are two reasons why you might learn to hand calculate right now. One is because you actually use it today. And I do use 
basic calculating in my head sometimes, you know, basic arithmetic. I even sometimes use times tables for estimating. Now, do I, you know, is that sort of the, 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 the pinnacle of my maths achievement at some point? No, it's, it's a rather boring thing you've got. It's kind of sometimes useful to know. In the end, much more important is, could I set up the right problem to know that I had to apply multiplication to do it? So I think the basics are running that four-step process, some hand calculating at an underlying level, but then leaving it to the computer and knowing what you can do with that. So I, I find sometimes there's discussion about, you know, do you need to know anything versus, you know, know how to do it? Sure. And I find that's a false dichotomy. I mean, you do need to know actual some, some things, some facts, some ways it works, and then you need to know how to run the system and how to look things up. And actually, one of the things we've done in our whole uh, project is to build a new set of outcomes. We looked around the world for what are the outcomes you actually want from, you know, 10 years of compulsory maths education. And we couldn't find a set that we were really happy with. So on our website, you'll find uh, sort of computerbasedmath.org slash outcomes. There is our proto list of these. And I think that to some extent in some more detail answers the question of sort of what are the basic things. And, and each of the outcomes sort of, there are 11 dimensions and each of them has a sort of, you know, more basic level and a less basic level. Um, but I think some of the basics are things like confidence to tackle new problems. I mean, to me, that's a fairly basic thing. If you've learned a, a skill of some sort, and in the end, you can only apply it to problems you've already dealt with, it's not terribly useful to you. you know, if you could only read books, to take the literacy example, it, it, if you could only read books after you'd come out of, you know, uh, out of school that you'd read before, and you had no ability to read any other books or any other text that you needed to read, that wouldn't be very useful, I think. And I feel like that's often what we've left out, you know, one example of where we've got the basics a bit wrong. Yeah, I think that analogy is perfect. I think also I like the way you talk about the need to have an instinctive feel for math. I think that I always thought about, you know, I think the other, the other way of phrasing it is always that um, being able to think mathematically. I think I prefer the instinctive feel because I think it, it, it it's an easier idea to hang on to. And therefore, you know, to try and distill that down, I'm, you, you'll correct me, but for me, for instance, it's, it's often for young, for a lot of people don't, for instance, realise the importance of patterns in mathematics. You know, a simple a concept that is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Idea, a, a, as you said, a concept, it's a very important concept in mathematics. And yet a lot of people go through and do six, eight, ten years of mathematics and never really understand the importance of it. Yet if you understand that, you, you, it, it helps you start to develop that instinctive feel for mathematics. To totally agree with that. And in fact, pattern matching is so important in many areas of life, you know, diagnostics for doctors, for example. Uh, and in a sense, pattern matching is, yeah, as you say, I just, that's an interesting point. I think it does fit very closely with that instinctive feel for maths dimension. And it, um, uh, it's something, yeah, it's funny how, how one develops that. I think one basically develops the instinct to feel by experience. Yeah. And one, one, but it has to be experience of what you're actually trying to do in the end. It's no getting experience of solving, to use my earlier analogy, you know, quadratic equations. If what you're trying to do is mass data science, because it's just different. And I think one place has been done very well is in, in pilot training. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that we have pilots go through simulated, you know, very realistic simulated experience means they're much better equipped to deal with those things ahead of when they actually happen. 
Uh, and and I think in a sense that's what we want to do with Massage. We want to give the the real lifestyle experience of applying it through complex, messy problems. That is what you're actually going to hit and get people that. And part of getting that experience then is getting the feel. You know what? Before I go down this track, it just smells wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, and I you know one of the things I often someone say about it, it's a bit like for a physicist you know if you tell them i built a perpetual motion machine now you can go and start working out the equations but in the end it smells wrong mm-hmm. and i also felt the same in the banking crisis when it was claimed you know some of the senior executives uh claimed that you know their their, their risk analysts and things had said that by mathematics they'd managed to eliminate risk yeah again they should have been well enough educated to know that smells wrong. Something wrong with that smell. Yeah. And, you know, and, and they weren't. And I think that's a failing to some extent of our, our maths education uh, system. And, and similarly, I think uh, you alluded to this beginning about sort of, uh, I think I brought this up with respect to Brexit, actually. And uh, it was very odd in the UK just before that. People were pounding the table telling the politicians, just tell us what the result will be, you know, of, of what, what the effect will be of voting one way or voting the other way, you know, if we go out of the EU or we don't. And the fact is, it's a very, it's a bit like my environmental thing I mentioned at the beginning. It's, it's very complicated to model. It's not clear, you know, how much will my house be worth if we stay in Europe or go out of Europe? It, it's too complicated to model. And again, people don't have the instinctive feel of that model of the idea that it's complicated to model that, whereas it probably is, is easier, although it's still a messy problem to model, you know, if I put lots of diesel cars in London uh, on today, and, you know, the, what's the pollution going to be at a particular place? There's a, I feel there's more lo- locality to that, localism in a sense to that problem, and you're more likely to be able to come up with a model that, that tells you something. So those sort of instinctive things, I think, are absolutely crucial, and they really depend on real problems and real experience. So, as, as I said, I think so many people now, and, and certainly in the time I think that you've been working in this field around computer-based math and, uh, and with the work that you've done, the development of curriculum, I think there's, there is a momentum growing. I can feel it. And the more that I talk about the work you're doing and that I hear from others now sharing those ideas, I have seen you, I have to say, sadly quoted, as you think this is a 25-year journey. Uh, I, I, I hope... I hope there's some shortcuts for some people, but can you give us just in, and you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate it, Conrad. Um, you've been, I know you've been doing some work in Estonia and other places. Could you give us just a little bit of background to some of that work and what's happening? At the sure. I mean, take Estonia as an example. We, we, they asked us build out our probability statistics curriculum for middle and, and upper school. I think they call it, uh, more or less, I think, sort of 13, 14 year olds and 17, 18 year olds. Don't look at what we've done in probability statistics. Do your own. Fantastic. Uh, which want. was very, you know, which is, oh yeah, I mean, it's very unusual. Um, the minister at the time was a physicist. Uh, so, you know, again, he, he got, uh, yeah, it, it helps because, I mean, he understood what the point was there. And, you know, I think we built a lot of uh, modules. We had to design the whole way in which we transmitted that. And, and I think that's sort of in round three, I think, of piloting now as they're trying to make that. And they're now thinking about how the assessments might work to to really, because I mean, the moment the, the people who went through that, the students who went through that had to take traditional assessments. Now, actually, the funny thing is, as I understand from them, they did as well in the traditional assessments as when they'd taken the traditional course. Yeah. Um, 
Now, that doesn't sound like a huge achievement, but actually it's some right. achievement given that they were sort of learning slightly the wrong thing for their assessments. Obviously, what we like is assessments that, that, that really match. Absolutely. And then we can hopefully really show how people do much better on that. So that's what we've done in Estonia. I mean, I have to say, you know, I think the 25-year estimate is till people really understand literally around the world that the mainstream subject got changed. Yep. The countries and states and everything else that do this first, I think will have a massive ability to leapfrog others in STEM pr production of, you know, really good STEM, STEM knowledgeable people and beyond and being able to apply those STEM subjects across. So I think it's actually a, just in a purely sort of economic, mercenary economic way, I think it's really important for countries and societies and individuals to go down this path. Um, and I'm pleased to say, you know, the, the conversation we've had in Australia uh, are, are, you know, a pretty, uh, on, the, on, the, on the high level of conversations we've had in the world. I and mean, I think there's much more, there's interest and there's openness and there's willingness to look at new things and, and practicality around it, which I, I hope we're going to be able to turn into some projects to, uh, to really try this in, in uh, at least a number of states. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's testament to some things. Lots of issues to sort out, lots of complexity, of course, but there's a, there's a belief that things have to move forward and, and an understanding of that, I think, in, in many quarters anyway. It's interesting, isn't it, when we think about the, the, the there's a lot of talk in recent times, predominantly in, in regards to uh, developing countries, of talking about leapfrogging, you know, this notion about, and as you said, you're talking crude economic capacity you know how can you how can you move ahead from where you are and yet it seems so logical this is this is an area that's staring people in the face that that we're all acknowledging stems you know at the forefront and that's where we have to be focused and yet we're sort of you know rigidly hanging on to our traditional view of what mathematics should be when we've got an opportunity to really do breakthrough thinking and change mindset and really it's funny when i go to some of these meetings internationally and things they all say we've got to improve the, uh, you know, we've got to improve the way we teach m maths. We've got to improve the way pedagogically we do it. And I keep saying, what's it? The, the problem is you can teach it as well as you like, and you can be a, you know, in the end, if you're teaching the wrong subject, it's quite hard to make it work right. And, and I think some of what we've asked our teachers to do actually is to do a fairly impossible thing of trying to equip people for this changing world in this area by teaching them a sort of proxy to the real subjects. And however well they go on, uh, you know, improve their teaching of that, it, it's sort of hard to make it match. Um, so I, 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 it's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think the, it, it is a very logical thing. It's, it's hard, it's, it's, in some ways I think it's so obvious that people, it kind of flies by people. And I think what I ask people to do is just, you, you, it's, you've got to take a several, takes at it because it's sort of like almost you know the ten commandments it's kind of maths has been there something that's there for all of our lives is something you need in the way that it's been and it's quite hard to sort of just come back out of that a little bit and say okay what what is the right law what is the right maths and really understand that and i think most people when they really sort of carefully reason through that themselves will start to see that there's a great logic to this and a, and a great way forward. But yeah, it's a big change. And, and frankly, there isn't a very good template for changing subjects. No, uh, there's really? Been a, the, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, no, but I mean, there also hasn't been, 
much of a big change of a subject in yeah. recent times. I mean, I think the most, the one I can think of that, I, I, again, I don't know how this fits in the Australian context. In Britain, Latin classics was the very mainstream intellectual subject in the 50s. And one of the mistakes I think the classicists made was that they thought that it would always be like that. And they would say, well, you know, we don't really have to justify classics because it's all obviously the mainstream thing. Well, 20 years later, it was dead as a mainstream subject. The difference between, you know, people even in the UK don't go around speaking Latin. You know, there isn't the outside equivalent, right? But maths, there is. There's this fantastic subject we've been talking about that really is driving the world forward. We're teaching a proxy to that. It's very hard to see how you move. But, but I think you know, and there are two ways to do it. One way to do it is to say, well, we should introduce something new that's sort of outside quotes maths, but is something that maybe we can latch onto for some part of the curriculum. So that doesn't kind of interfere to start with. And the other way is to say, well, let's take maths and try and reform some piece of it and see how that works and then move out from there. I think yeah. it depends on the context as to which is the best way around. Agreed. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much reminded in uh, Change School, the work that uh, Will Richardson and I have been doing through Modern Learners, um, a person we often refer to as Russell um, Acoff, who can, you know, continually refers to doing, we, can, we, we want to do the wrong thing right. The righter we do the wrong thing, the more wrong it becomes. Rather than, uh -huh. that's interesting. You know, and, it, and I'll send you the link to, he's, he's got some absolutely spectacular um, videos that um, he talks about. But he, his work's been in that regard, isn't in schools. I mean, it's so applicable in schools, it's, it's a perfect context for it. But he, he's worked in um, all around the world in, in, uh, in corporate sectors in some of the largest companies in the world. And he, and he says, you know, we just continue to want to do the wrong thing right. And I think it's very much in line with what you're saying. Just, just as a sort of final comment, I'm wondering whether um, uh, what your sense is about what we can or, or are, could be doing in the area of, of mathematic teacher education, um, undergraduate education. Have you, have you been able to have to do any work in that area and, and any thoughts on, on what we could be doing? In yeah, I think less than we might have liked. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, in a way, there's a very simple thing, which is, make sure that, that all maths teachers understand the point of what it is they're doing uh, by looking at the context of what they're doing. And I mean, so, so a lot of the things, I mean, one, one of the, I suppose, most pleasurable things I get out of this is when I see people, either teachers or, or students, saying, you know what, I, I learned this for 10 years of my life. You've explained to me why this has any relationship to my life. Like, I, I now see how maths fits into my life. So I think, even if one could change nothing else at the moment, I think getting teachers equipped to see mathematics in this sort of less abstract way uh, as, as a mechanism, as a problem-solving system to an end um, would be really beneficial. Because I think even then, if they're, they're locked into some curriculum they've got to teach at, the, at a given moment, that's always in their mind as to what the context is. And I think that will help a great deal. I also think it'll give them more confidence. Yeah. Now, I think one of the biggest issues is confidence, and it's very easy to see why, because you know, if you're trying to teach something where you're not quite sure why you're teaching it, and that's sort of somewhere lodged in the back of your mind, because you couldn't really justify why you needed that, that makes it, I think, a little harder. And, and I think back to the literacy thing, you know, we all read in the end. We all need reading. It's obvious why you need it. It's obvious why you need to express yourself. You need to speak. You need to write. 
it's not obvious why you need to solve a quadratic equation. And so that, I think, doesn't help in, as part of the thing. So I think, I think those are things. I mean, I think another thing is we should manage to get teachers competent, you know, confident, competent in what I would call modern programming coding to the extent that they can write things down, get the computers to do basic things. I don't think this is a hard ask with modern languages. Obviously, we got our Wolfram language, I know well. There are other languages. I think that the intertwining of coding and maths would be a great help. And I think it's, by the way, where it needs to be in the end, uh, curriculum-wise, too. And I think it's, it's a lens through which people should be thinking about mathematics, isn't it? I mean, if they think through that lens, it's going to change the perspective and the context in which they present it to their students. And, and, and as you said, Absolutely. that's the way we want to see it. So, and and also, not, not, just one final thing on that, just also not seeing it as a separate subject. You know, maths, the reason maths is this mainstream subject is it, it potentially could underline science, geography, history. In a sense, every subject is a computational subject. What maths is injecting is computation. So I, in fact, going forward, I think one of the things I'm looking at is saying, well, actually, we've got computational history modules and computational geography modules. In the same way as you have to do writing in geography and history, you have to apply computation in geography and history. And in a sense, maths is the core or I don't know whether maths is even the right name for it, but the core technical subject we should be doing in schools is that underlying uh, subject to allow the computation to be applied in these other ways. And I think when you're a maths, you're an empowerer of that. And the more you can help fit it in with other subjects and help be the core to allow the other subjects to use it, the better. Thanks so much for listening to the Modern Learners Podcast. Make sure you join us in the Modern Learners community to continue the discussion. Simply go to modernlearners.community and sign up or sign in. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be honored if you took a screenshot and shared it on Insta or Twitter. Tag us so we know you tuned in. That really helps us get the word out and we really appreciate it. I'll sign off now, just like I did in the classroom. Have a great day. Don't get in trouble.